Hi, this is Alex Romanovich, and welcome to Global Edge Talk. Today, we have our guest, Peter Watts, who is a serial tech entrepreneur involved with a number of software projects, involved with a number of very interesting communities and collaboration networks, involved with a number of M&A transactions and uh, investor himself. Peter, welcome to our studio. Thanks, Alex. Pleasure to be with you. Uh, Peter, you have a very interesting career and a very interesting set of experiences, and um, we would love to discuss them, especially within the context of what's going on right now, the the shape of the entrepreneurship today um, in a very, um, some would call it a difficult situation or difficult market environment. Uh, but uh, just briefly, let me introduce you. Let me introduce your background so that our audience has a bit more of a context. Uh, you're now a CEO and the co-founder of an of a interesting platform. I had an, an opportunity to experience it. The platform is called Solutionize. It's a set of products and um, platforms to help one entity or individuals, associations, build and manage um, critical infrastructure, build and manage communities, uh, specifically uh, with a focus on government and healthcare. And we'll talk more about that. Prior to that, you were a, um, a CEO and a founder of a company called Group Intelligence, which was successfully sold to IBM. We'd love to hear more about that experience. And then um, you were involved with a number of interesting um, entrepreneurial software projects, uh, PlanetWorks, Tangent International, and so forth. You're also doing quite a bit on the, um, um, uh, uh, you know, in the um, uh, volunteer scene, excuse me. Uh, you're involved with the Coalition of Recovery Specialists, uh, an organization that's involved with substance abuse and substance use disorders. You're a member of trustees for uh, Children's Aid and Family Services. So you're quite involved in for some amazing, amazing causes. Um, but let's start. Let's talk more about you, and let's talk more about your experiences as an entrepreneur. So, Solutionize, tell us a little bit more about this really interesting platform, really interesting company, and sort of what precipitated and what um, made you begin something like this, and what are you what are you involved with right now? Okay, um, thank you very much. So. Solutionize is about collaboration platforms and applying collaboration platforms to various aspects of healthcare. We've um, this is our tenth year. We, the my co-founder and I, <clears throat> have worked together for twenty five years, which is one of the secrets of uh, entrepreneurism is having good partners. Uh, she and I have worked together on collaboration platforms since the beginning of the web which led to us building a web-based business that you mentioned IBM had acquired. And that was a collaboration around applications. And we realized that there needs to be a human element for collaboration to be successful. And we, we started collaboration platforms before social networking kicked in. So we were sort of early pioneers in uh, connecting people, but not for social purposes, more for business. And we worked on that for um, about 10 years in, as you mentioned, group intelligence. The um, group intelligence company was building collaboration networks 
of um, four major tech firms to connect their customers, business partners, and staff around the world. And we did that for 12 years. And um, in one example with IBM, we had 100,000 businesses connected at any one time um, in this IBM ecosystem across all of their different brands. It was a fantastic business. And when we um, exited that business, we decided to apply the collaboration platforms to uh, people and helping the people of the world. I think as people get older, they tend to think more about the rest of the world, and that's really what, what we did. So we started a company 10 years ago, and our goal was to, <clears throat> uh, as you mentioned, critical infrastructures, create critical infrastructures for those that don't have it and can't organize it because of the way they're structured. So we first started working with uh, local governments. You know, there, there's 3,000 local county governments in the country, and they're all disparate. They're not connected. They're not... Um, have many many differences which help perpetuate some of the differences we have in the in the nation and we work with the national association to bring together those 3000 counties and we were successful to a degree we we connected about half of the counties in the country so over a thousand and during that time we the predominance of our work was working with public health officers at the county level and we realized that county health has got a very important task as COVID proved and AIDS proved and other uh, pandemics proved in the past. But they're, they're not very well connected to the healthcare system, surprisingly. And they're not very well supported financially. So we decided to really focus our energy not so much on government, but, but in public health. And early on, we saw... Um, some of the challenges, the, 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 the rift between healthcare, which is driven by business model primarily, and public health, which is driven by policy and goals. Um, and never the twain shall meet. Um, so it's sort of a love-hate relationship. And we decided to, um, we looked at where the weaknesses were in the critical infrastructure, and it was really in the not-for-profit world, in local government world, in in not-for-profits and coalitions that have got a purpose. So, for example, one of our early partners was the Indiana Addiction Issues Coalition, dealing with substance use in Indiana. We started, we built a hub to connect their recovery organizations to help people in recovery. It started off with six recovery organizations in 2017, and it's now blossomed into 100 recovery organizations. And our work with that group helped us build another 15 hubs in Indiana. So we saw the secret infrastructure of uh, in Indiana's mental health world. We have um, uh, to almost, we will have by the end of the year, almost 20 different hubs. And we have a goal next year of connecting them so that anyone with a mental health substance use problem can find any service in the state. And that ecosystem is made up of many, many small companies, small not-for-profits, uh, many of them are grant-driven. They don't have their own infrastructure. So we we act as that sort of virtual infrastructure. And it's um, it's a very exciting space, and we're beginning to replicate that, that work across the country. And everywhere we look, Alex, there's, um, there's people in recovery from 
substance use, as people with mental health challenges increasingly. And when you go look for care, it's very disorganized, um, disparate in many ways. There's no guidance to what somebody needs. So you could go down many different avenues as a, as a family member, which I've been a family member dealing with addiction in my family. Um, you go down many avenues looking for access to care, and it's very, very challenging. And if you pick the wrong avenue, uh, the results can be um, dramatically bad. So we started with helping access to care, so organising care sources, care coalitions. <clears throat> and then uh, we started to connect the individuals in care um, to family members and others that can help them during their journey. And just more recently, we've started on, uh, we've built a platform in conjunction with the Department of Mental Health uh, to prioritise care. So um, anyone seeking care can get waitlisted with an organisation, and if they're not admitted into care within an algorithm timeframe, let's say um, 24 hours, then the need for their, their family's need gets broadcast out to the ecosystem of providers. So the, the whole strategy there is no one left behind. So to sort of summarise this, we've built our what we call a community care cloud with three components. One is collaboration hub to bring together affinity groups such as recovery organisations, prevention organisations, infancy men mental health, uh, recovery residences. These are the different types of the granular silos of care that we're trying to um, automate. And we try and bring them together through the sort of router to priority care. And then we try and connect their care journey through a, a third product called Team Patient which helps the individual and their duty of care team through the ensuing journey. And what many people don't realise, the healthcare system is just beginning to accept this, but um, somebody with mental health or substance use problems generally have multiple providers. They'll have uh, behavioural health providers, specialists, medical specialists, counsellors. Uh, they've often got legal issues. They've got spiritual issues, so faith-based help is an important factor of that. And our goal of our platforms is to bring all of these people together, surround the individual with care, uh, and make sure no one's left behind. That's really the, the, the big purpose, the, the mission, vision, and values of our business is to do that in an affordable way. So it's, it's a long story, but they're, they're, they're the sort of headlines. I think it's a great story, and I think we'll uh, definitely keep following um, your progress. You know, we'll... We'll basically follow your progress with that very important topic only because uh, with what's going on right now <clears throat> in the world, it's uh, extremely important to not only provide that level of care by different organizations, but it's also very important to learn from the experiences. And I believe having experienced your platform, I believe it's um, uh, it's accomplishing that. It's um, accomplishing the um, the fact that it's building a community, it's it's helping um, that community um, attract different members of the community, the support structure, and so forth. So it's a very, very important uh, topic, a very important uh, development. But let's talk a little bit about your earlier days. 
Now, you um, you have a very interesting and diverse background in terms of uh, being an entrepreneur and experiencing a variety of different events. One of those events was a uh, starting a company, building a company, and then successfully exiting that company with a transaction. A lot of entrepreneurs start that their businesses uh, just for that purpose, uh, as you know especially the ones in Silicon Valley and uh, startups all over the world, um, they may um, certainly uh, dream of uh, retiring from their companies and so forth. But for the most part, I think it's a three to five year run and then uh, exit. So tell us a little bit more about that entire experience. Obviously, we don't have enough time, but in, in, in a few sentences, tell us about the experience of starting something building something, and then exiting. Uh, can you actually plan for something like this? Does it happen uh, serendipitously? Uh, you know, and what happens when it happens? Okay, so um, the, the example was a company called PlanetWorks that we built in 1995. We sold it in 1999. It was a web. It was a pioneer in the web. Um, it built collaboration technology to link old software to new software. So we used to call it put lipstick on a pig. So some of the old mainframe <laughs> applications. That's um, good. We we turned we we webified app, old applications. Uh, that was the essence of it. Um, it was a spinoff from a IT services company that I I built um, in the preceding twenty years, which was global. So I'd seen um, seen a lot of things around the world, uh, met lots of people, worked with, a, we had hundreds of people working for us in our service company. And I got to see real uh, real skill. And I, and I first thing we did was to hire real skill into that team. So um, I had a head of technology from Stanford, um, chief information officer was from MIT. Um, I started with a very core group of people. I started small, self-funded, um, and my, my focus was not to sell a business. So to your point, I don't think you can start with the goal of selling a business. I think you start with a good idea. And increasingly in today's world, you have to do good as well as be good. So at the time, we had no human purpose in our business other than to, to improve efficiency of technology. But um, we had a real purpose to it, and we and we followed some trends, and we um, chose to work with some of the leaders in the space. We worked with IBM, we worked with some microsystems, and a few leading client server companies. Um, and our whole focus was collaboration. And we um, and, the, and the advice to others is to we're in a world of collaboration. We're in a we're in a mixed world, a very diverse, uh, disparate world in many ways. Unless you start with a focus on collaboration, um, you, you can't do this stuff on your own anymore. Um, so at the time, we had a we had an expert team, a small team. We kept costs down. We we did the exact opposite of raising tons of venture money and throwing mud at the wall to see what stuck. Um, we were very deliberate, and when we pursued an avenue that wouldn't give us quick enough growth, we made a tough decision to change direction and we changed towards working with IBM 
And then when we change direction, we put all of our efforts into that direction. So, um, you know, one of the things I say to younger entrepreneurs, new entrepreneurs, is stick to one thing. You know, do one thing very well. Um, not many things, you know, partially well. Do it with a good team. Do it with a degree of control. So one of the one of the challenges of venture capital, um, which sort of is a byproduct of your question, um, is that if if young entrepreneurs that haven't run a business before get venture capital too early, they they run two races. They run a race against the market, and they run a race against the venture capital um, towards keeping control, um, getting the company funded continually properly which i don't really understand so they run the risk of losing control of that and i've in the past i've seen venture capital take to take control of companies too early in the cycle and they lose they lose the founders they lose spirit the founders get dispirited things don't work so well i think you have to pick your time to get venture money um we built our business to the point where ibm will we could help their, their 30,000 customers for mainframes around the world. And our technology added value to each of those mainframes and the software licenses. Um, so our, we had a very simple strategy, which was um, get our software as part of the mainframe software license. That was sort of our goal. And when we started towards that goal, IBM point said to us, you know, you, you would be a good acquisition target. And it was only then that I raised venture capital money and um, I raised it so that we would have enough money to be very viable with IBM and scale up with them. And secondly, if they didn't pursue the acquisition, we um, we had um, an alternative. that We were we had the cash to, to support an alternative strategy. And it worked very successfully. And um, IBM were, um, I know you worked for IBM for a long time, Alex, so... Uh, exceptionally good company to work with. They're very trustworthy and honest, um, which made the process a lot easier. And, and we didn't have the um, we didn't have the burden of money in this. And and I say that I I led the negotiations, and it went on for nine months, and they're very complicated. And if you've got other parties in there with vested interests like venture capital, you spend most of your time managing the situation rather than managing your business. So. Um, as, as the, the situation with Twitter has found, you know, um, they've had a lot of disruption in the last six months because of multiple competing interests. So uh, my advice is small team, self-fund when you can, prove your desire to create a business. Don't start it to sell it. It might be a goal, but it might be a, a vision but, um, and, a, and a dream. But, but don't make that the overriding goal because that doesn't work. You have to you have to deliver. Um, be collaborative and try and be judicious about when you raise money. There's sometimes if you're chasing a you know, market opportunity and it's very limited time, um, you think you need you need more money to take advantage of first mover. Well, first movers rarely happen, actually. Um, I, I heard a great quote from Bill Gates one time. Uh, Bill Gates said. Customers are very slow to respond to technology innovation, and tech firms are very slow to create innovation. And I, and I thought that was great wisdom. The fact is, you've always got more time than you think. And um, 
So my, my real advice is think carefully about how much you need and when you need it and what you will do when you get it. Um, people, you know, venture capital guys call that use of funds. I think it's a lot more than use of funds. I think it's about use of management time, actually. You have to really look carefully at how much time getting money takes and then managing that relationship is a full-time job. And it often creates different perspectives. I um, I raised money in um, 1988. I built a, a network business for college recruitment um, before the internet. And it was very challenging. And we worked with um, colleges and their computer departments. I, I raised some venture capital money at that time. And um, the owners quickly, the, the other partners quickly showed me they had totally different perspective. I was focused on college recruitment. They had their money in it. They thought my strategy would apply to all recruitment, including um, the serious professionals. They went from going to colleges to going to newspapers that at the time had the biggest uh, footprint for people. Um, and it was a flawed strategy. And, and we, I spent much of my time arguing about strategy. We run out of money quicker because of that difference of, of strategy. Um, and it was, um, we, had, we had fantastic innovation way before some of these like Monster Board and some of these big recruitment businesses. Um, my, my partner didn't stay on focus. And I think the real message to everyone is stay on focus. Make sure whatever decision you make allows you to stay on focus. But the business we're in now and Solutionize, it's been a long haul. It's taken uh, six to seven years to get the trust of the market. You know, we're dealing with people's lives and uh, embedded systems, um, I mean, embedded processes and, and business models. And we're sort of turning that on its head and people don't turn on their head very easily. They don't let you turn them on their head very easily. So all of your decisions should be about keeping on focus, making sure you understand what money you need, controlling the team, controlling the partners that you choose to bring in financially, because that that ultimately decides the outcome. Long answer. It wasn't a few sentences. Sorry. No, no, that's uh, actually great advice. Uh, a number of great uh, advice points. Um, a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about. Um, uh, what do we do with all that wonderful experience? Um, amazing journeys that are out there, entrepreneurs that are 60 plus, 50 plus, and yet um, the market, the world is still recognizing entrepreneurship and startups and uh, even to a certain extent scale-ups as a, as a youth phenomenon, so to speak. I mean, I'll, I'll dare to talk about this topic only because I've experienced something myself uh, recently. And uh, is there a better way for us to uh, fuse, to merge the youthful energy of, of entrepreneurship with a lot of experience, a lot of wisdom, a lot of great um, um, work that's been done already that's out there in the world? Uh, what do you think about that? Well, as someone who is... Um... I've spent a life playing sport and I played semi-professional soccer at the age of 14 and I'm now playing uh, in an over 50s and an over 60s league many years on. So I'm very conscious of the um, 
impact of age, let's say, on uh, on performance. But in business, the performance generally is the reverse of that. You know, I've slowed down a lot over the years on soccer. I'm using my wisdom. Um, I, I think in business, the, the, the same is true, but the, I think the wisdom really rises very quickly, even if you, you don't lose your skills. Um, I've got a couple of examples that are very interesting. So um, when we worked in the, the tech world with collaboration platforms in uh, early 2000s, we worked with Microsoft uh, as well as IBM. And my business, my current business partner and I were picked to mentor a number of Microsoft entrepreneurs um, at a university in England, where it's maybe apparent to your listeners that's where I'm from. Um, and we spent some time working with seriously good graduates with, with brilliant skills, uh, academically and otherwise. Um, so they, Microsoft picked some very leading uh, graduates. And we, uh, there's two, two particular groups of two people that we mentored. And we, they eventually asked us to be longer-term mentors for them, not just through the Microsoft program. In both cases, and in both cases, we said, well, let's take a, a small part of your business, share a small part of your business with us. Um, and both of them refused to do that. Both groups refused to do it. And um, we gave them some advice that they shredded very quickly because they they didn't really um, investigate it sufficiently. So we didn't have a good success in that mentoring process, even though the, the people we were with, we really believed in. They sort of needed us, but they didn't think, well, they needed us, but they didn't think they did. So that was sort of data point number one. The data point number two, I have an advisory board in Solutionize with uh, 12 people, and the, there's nobody uh, uh, under 50 on the advisory board, and it's not because of ageism. Um, I, I picked these people because I've worked with them over years. I knew them. Um, there's a few in their 50s, a few in their 60s, and a few in their early 70s. One of the guys in their early 70s um, has been CEO of two NASDAQ companies, very successful companies, and he sold one business to Oracle not too long ago. And when he was out raising money for his new business recently, they, they said to him, you should find a young CEO. And honestly, um, Michael's one of the best CEOs I've, I've known, and he's been a leader in the IT world since 1984 when I met him and tried to hire him at the time. And he was always too good for us. He was always out of our league, you know. Um, so I look at those sort of two, two examples and think um, there needs to be better compromise. There needs to be better understanding of roles. You know, it's not empirical. Um, and, I, and I think the role for sort of three things, I, I think. Number one, for your business, I think to have a group of um, advisory board members that would be available to companies based on their skills is a great way to use the experience of elder entrepreneurs, um, but not just as, as advisors, but as some form of partnerships in, in the company, some form of earned uh, value in it. Because just as an advisor, you can be blown off, as I found with that Microsoft experience. Um, we were blown off. Um, not rightly. I think we, we had value to add to the group. Um, and they needed a compromise a bit more. 
I think there needs to be an understanding of, of that compromise, number one. Um, I think number two, um, I, I think that when, when I, I had a very interesting introduction to technology, I left school at 17 and I joined an oil company in their uh, management training program. And I was one of the few non-graduates that were invited to, to play. And um, a fantastic training program for two years, um, after which I, I became self-employed and haven't looked back, really. In that period, uh, I was mentored officially uh, in, in the company by a few different people. And, and that's beginning to happen in the world today. Um, it's happening in larger companies. So my daughter-in-law, for example, mentors young women in in um, in advertising technology media, um, but it's in pockets. And, and I think as a, I think there needs to be something more systematic in companies, and it needs to come down to the entrepreneur level. I, I think um, in big companies that have got their own methods of doing things, and they, and they apparently have got more time and money. But I think some of the lessons learned of mentoring um, mentoring and mentees and mentors, I think could be brought into companies. And I think with some education for um, entrepreneurs is that, that age and wisdom isn't something just to be used for occasional advice, but to really be partnering and to define who's good at what, you know. Um, so in my case, um, there's probably two or three areas of my skill, like understanding the landscape of the market, um, doing research on target markets and who you should partner with, um, the impact of, of, of money. They're sort of, and, and, and teamwork, fostering teamwork uh, across a very multidisciplined team and in a world where we're largely remote still. So my skills would be there and, and that doesn't take away from the innovation of the individuals. And I think if there was some more training available to learn how to partner between older and younger, I think that will be very, very successful. Uh, I, I think there's never enough time allocated to it. And, it, and it's sort of, um, I think the venture capital people don't help because I think uh, generally they do prefer the younger entrepreneurs. And of course, they have a vested interest in taking control of that company and monetizing it. So they'll use the energy of the youth and the innocence of youth to take advantage of it quite often. It's not all negative, but I'm saying in general, um, I think they don't like older entrepreneurs because they tend to have more opinions and more understanding of what to do and therefore less controllable. So finding that balance um, is, is I, I think, companies like yours, Alex, that really communicate to, to the world at large of entrepreneurs, I think training about you know, blend um, is 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 really really important. It's um, you know we've got this in healthcare actually. Um, the, the work that we do is disaggregating certain groups and it is turning things on their head. I think the traditional model of you know president, CEO, four vice presidents, and maybe a senior vice president. Those sort of structures are old, and they don't allow for um, this sort of blending. I, I, I see some cases where there's co CEOs. Um, in bigger companies, I think there needs to be more understanding of that in smaller companies. So you have a structure that's more accepted um, to, to blend old and new. The, the value of it's enormous. 
So again, long answer. Uh, well, I feel actually, passionate about it like you do. Actually, yeah, no, it's a it's a it's a great answer, and I think it's going to be interesting. What's going to happen, especially with um, um, with a number of different remedies available in the longevity space, where um, I think the entrepreneurs, an entrepreneurial spirit is going to is going to go into 60s and 70s and even 80s for that matter. Yeah. Warren, Warren Buffett, I think, is still uh, is still kicking around and he is 80-something, 80, <laughs> 80 right? Um, uh, I think he's uh, 90, actually. Or, or maybe he's 90, his past 90 mark. Ringo so, stops 80. Uh, he's still so, doing it. <laughs> yeah, so I think he's leveraging his, his uh, skills and his wisdom and his um, experience uh, quite nicely. Um, you mentioned something really interesting about the investors and them being the culprit of, um, um, you know, of, of this phenomenon of, of maybe handpicking or selecting somebody who is less experienced or somebody who is, um, um, who is um, uh, youthful, has a lot more energy, can put in more hours and so forth and so on. Um, yet a number of investors are of uh, age and they probably uh, use the wisdom and the experience to guide their investment investments and and uh, the founders of the companies they invest into and so forth. So why wouldn't they invest into the same level of wisdom? Is it because they don't want to learn? They don't want to argue? They don't want to create conflict? Is it that or is it because indeed they're more on the side of, hey, you know, we can get more out of it. You know, we could get squeeze more energy out of it, squeeze more hours out of it, more innovation, and so forth and so on. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I don't think they're culprits. I, I think um, it's sort of. I, I, I didn't in, intend to imply they're culprits. I think um, they have a, a mission. They have a goal. They have uh, investors themselves, and they have mandates. Um, and just two weeks ago, I got a call from a private equity firm that that had seen us and uh, learned about us and felt we were interesting. And the guy contacted me and um, said, you know, we buy majority stakes. We we keep the um, investor, the founders, interested for a seven-year period. And um, this sort of, is sort of the opening statement from him, which did, it, it, was a, it was, I was going to say, don't you want to kiss me first? You know, it was a bit too quick, really. But I think that characterizes where investors are. Uh, they're on a fast track themselves, and they don't want to get involved in the operations of the business, Alex. And I think that's the issue. Um, you know, if you start looking at cultural diversity, which I'm a big fan of, my business partner's um, a Filipino lady that I've worked with for 30 years, and uh, she's fantastic. Um, she makes a lot of the smart decisions in our business um, and oversees all of the operations of it. Um, I've been a big fan of diversity for, for many years. But when, when you've got issues like diversity and age, sexism, um, some of these challenges of today's world, um, you know, as an investor, you really don't want to get involved in it. So I think you tend to go for, um, I think they tend to go for what they think is more manageable for them. And the more manageable are younger people that want money. And whereas older people tend to 
be judicious about what they want and how they get it. So they're more difficult to deal with, I'd say, because the wisdom works against the goals of the investors. They find balance. Um, again, I don't think they're, they're culprits. I think they're just they've got a mission, and you have to understand their mission. Their mission isn't the company's operations. Their mission is their exit. As this guy told me in the first sentence, and then cool. Um, secondly, I think I think the biggest issue that uh, I've I've had a business now fifty years uh, almost, um, and in that time, I've always hired people based on their passion and their abilities and their um, capabilities. But in that order, really, I think passion is really important. And I, and I think uh, you, you need to, when, you, when you're looking at older, when investors are looking at older people in their companies, they've got to look at the passion, not their age, not thinking this is no longer the 50s where you know, people must retire at 62, you know, or 65. Um, that passion is often the difference in, in winning and losing. So I think the investors need to be a bit more circumspect. Um, and, and, I, and I think the, the, the understanding of what investors do and why they do it needs to be better understood on the, on the, on the buy side, you know, on the investor side. They need to understand that these guys are there to make money and they want the least distraction. They want to move in the fastest time they can. And they want as much control as they can because they've often they've often got the wisdom. Not often, they've generally always got the wisdom to guide the company properly and with the connections to guide the company properly. So they don't want too many obstacles. So it's definitely um, it's a, it's definitely a fine balance, Alex. I don't have a magic answer. But, Understand uh, absolutely. I mean, it's uh, listen. It's it's a, it's a great discussion and. We're uh, obviously discussing this from the standpoint of uh, of uh, two entrepreneurs who have been through a number of projects and so forth, and uh, we're familiar with uh, with the topic. We have a lot of uh, uh, folks in the audience who are just entering or perhaps seriously considering uh, getting into their own business or starting on the um, you know on the on an idea and and turning the idea into a product. I was recently talking to uh, to somebody um, who's a friend of a friend who decided, you know, uh, uh, after many many years of uh, wine tasting, and uh, you know, decided to come up with the perfect way and perfect product to uh, chill the wines to proper temperature. <laughs> you know, so it's actually a new hardware device was born out of this thing, and they've been in, in trials for the past couple of years and uh, are about to launch the product. Uh, on the market and test the product on the market. So uh, it, it's never too late to apply your life um, experiences and professional experiences to become an entrepreneur and to jump into the entrepreneurship game. Um, on, on that point, uh, I had just this weekend, one of my advisory board members who is um, dean of a business school and very accomplished person, uh, been on the board of public companies for many years. Uh, we met at Harvard Business School. He um, is slightly older than me. He introduced a colleague that's about my age. And we spent much of the weekend talking about a new business in healthcare that they wanted to enter. Um, so our combined age was probably the combined age of many companies today. 
you know, young startups. So it's definitely never too old to 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 start. And I I think the thing I'd say to um, yeah, young people starting, try and find the person that's got wisdom in in your contacts, in your family's contacts somewhere, because I think wisdom and decision making is so important when you start a business. And the fact that no one knows everything. Um, I've got I've got a, a very seasoned advisory board, as I mentioned earlier. And I was criticized not long ago for not using them wisely by, by one of my team. And I asked what she meant. And she said, well, you spend much of the time reporting to them on progress and not asking them enough questions. And I realized... That's what I do. I'm a promoter. I was sort of promoting to them. I didn't need to promote to them. I needed to ask their opinions because they're very wise. So we changed our uh, approach to working with that board this year. And we've had some, I'd say probably some of our best advisory calls in the last six or seven years as a result of that. And it comes from picking the right people, asking the right questions, you know. Somebody said, um, somebody said to Einstein, what was the... um, how did you solve the theory of relativity? And his answer was asking the right questions, you know. And I think it applies to very complex and also very simple things. You have to get down to the essence. And sometimes the balance of youth and experience is the best way to do to tackle that. So my advice is get some people with wisdom early on in an advisory role, ask some questions, value their input, listen carefully. Don't forget what they say, you know. <laughs> and Peter, on this note, I want to thank you for being with us. Um, this is, um, it's been a great interview. I want us to continue to stay in touch. We're definitely going to follow uh, your progress with Solutionize. I think it's an amazing platform. I've experienced some really great, um, great ideas and great results. And um, for any communities uh, that are out there, associations, uh, government uh, agencies, uh, state and local government agencies that are the one to strengthen their ability to communicate, to support um, folks that are in need, that are in trouble. Uh, Solutionize is a great answer, is a great platform. So thank Thanks. you very much for being with us. And um, until we meet again, uh, we uh, this has been Alex Romanovich with uh, Global Edge Talk. Thanks, Alex.